HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Hey, y'all. Welcome to Meet and Three. This week, we have a show about food waste. But first, we want to bring you some developing news out of Brooklyn. It just so happens that this story starts with the kitchen full of wasted food. Uh, it just looks so draconian and heavy-handed. It looks so roughshod. But yeah, that food could have been able to be used. This week, we learned that Pilotworks, a food incubator and kitchen facility located just one mile from our studio, was suddenly shuttered. I spoke to Jay Solly, who operated Brooklyn Quality Eats out of Pilotworks. Uh, that notice went out late Friday, and then Saturday was when operations completely ceased for all of the members. Folks were in operation at the time and were told, you must vacate immediately. Now, security was rallied up to the fourth floor and to the second floor where the commercial kitchens were, and they were, you know, coming in really heavy. You have to leave right now, and if you don't, you, you know, we will be calling law enforcement on you. You will have the police come. So folks left stuff on the burners. Jay and the others weren't able to return to collect their food and equipment until Monday at 9 a.m. He showed me photos of the space that he took of cookware, prepware, crates of peaches rotting on a counter. It was abrupt, to say the least. The sudden closing shocked over 175 entrepreneurs who regularly utilize the Pilotworks facilities. It is a surprise. It is a total shock to us because they had a Ferrari and they drove it off the cliff. And we all were with them, you know, in the back seat. Jay's metaphor is referring to the fact that most were under the impression that Pilotworks was on solid footing with plenty of financial backing. You've got Acre Ventures, which is Campbell Soup's uh, venture capital firm. You've got folks, co-founders of Seamless and Grubhub that were involved in the leadership structure of this entity. You've got folks that have done this before and, you know, you had first round funding, $15 million worth of first round funding secured December 2017. However, some did see hints of trouble. Here's William Hickox of Riff Raff. He produced stir-ins for his ricotta cups at Pilotworks. There was a, a key um, employee that uh, sort of for the, the members. Uh, she was kind of the point of contact, and she left uh, a couple months ago. So I thought, oh, that was kind of a quick turnaround. Um, I don't know if it was related or not, but it definitely raised a little bit of a red flag a few months ago when that happened. Um, and then I know that the uh, CEO as well was uh, changed over. They had some you know higher-level changeover as well. Um, but nothing to say, hey, we need a sort out another solution now. 
Now many entrepreneurs are left looking for a new place to work and store product and wondering if they'll be able to get any of their October rent money returned. Because a lot of this is, you know, you pay as you go, but there were 18 days left. Many of the businesses were also using Pilotworks as their distributor and have unpaid invoices. You know, some of these folks had three, four, five thousand dollar invoices that Pilotworks owed them, and there's been no word on that. One of the only silver linings in this fiasco is the way that the community has rallied together and begun to organize. It's really been uh, eye-opening in a positive way of how everyone else other than Pilotworks has sort of been dealing with uh, the situation, whether it's members who are uh, hard up, you know, people offering their time to help move people, um, or other incubator kitchens uh, like Hot Bread Kitchen, you know, they, they were amazingly helpful providing a possible freezer storage facility. Jay's also been working hard to make sure that government officials at all levels are aware of the situation. The highest levels of New York City government are engaged in this. The, the, the uh, president of EDC, James Platchett, is aware of this. Uh, Greg Bishop, the SBS commissioner, is aware of this. There was outreach to Councilman uh, Cornegie, who is the uh, councilman for where Pfizer is located in his district. He believes that this awareness is key to preventing similar instances in the future. Small business protections occur when local government's aware and is engaged. But ultimately, this network of ex-pilotwork-based businesses will need to decide if they'll navigate these uncharted waters as a group or on their own. But we are going to have a, an opportunity to define whether or not we want our own future as a, a group of makers. And they could help change the face of Brooklyn's food landscape for good. We'll be following this story over the next month for a special episode of Meet and 3. Our team will tag along with some of the small business owners that now face tons of unexpected challenges going into a busy holiday season. If you or someone you know has been affected by the Pilotworks closure, please get in touch at ideas at meetin3.nyc. And now, on to our show. This episode is brought to you by Heritage Foods, an online and wholesale distributor of heritage breed meat and poultry. Learn more at heritagefoods.com. Welcome to Meet and 3, Heritage Radio Network's weekly food news roundup. I'm your host and HRN's communications director, Kat Johnson. Today, we'd like to talk to you about food waste. You've likely heard this statistic before. Up to 40% of food in the U.S. is wasted. That's about 400 pounds of food per person every year. But who can really fix this problem? Does the responsibility of reducing food waste lie with farmers, restaurateurs, or with you and me? Kevin Wheeler explains how one foreign government figured out a way to get individual citizens to get actively involved in solving the food waste crisis. Food waste is a universal problem, but different countries are tackling it in unique ways. Katie Kiefer explores this topic in episode 234 of What Doesn't Kill You. She sat down with film producer Lydia Tanaglia about her movie, Wasted, the story of food waste. During the conversation, Tanaglia highlighted the measures that South Korea has taken to reduce its food waste. They introduced a system where residents were issued an electronic ID card that would open an automated bin and enable them to weigh the food waste 
being dropped off, and then they would be charged, you know, in a certain amount of money yep. for the weight of that food. The South Korean government implemented this waste billing system in 2013. According to Tanaglia, these changes are meted out sort of like electric bills. You throw out this much food, you get charged this much money at the end of the month. Simple as that. But unlike most bills, these waste fees turned out to be a force for positive change. You know, there's nothing like bills and economics, you know, to motivate people <laughs> but, I mean, to how did they, reduce how did, their food waste. Yeah. And in a very, very short period of time. But in order to use these bins and throw out your garbage, you need a special ID card, which tracks how much food you're throwing out. Despite the hassle, this practice helped reduce food waste by about a quarter million tons from 2008 to 2014. Wasted shows what some Koreans go through to shrink their waste as much as possible. According to South Korean Arirang News, there are 10,000 of these food waste bins in Seoul, South Korea's capital city. In the first half of 2017, these bins cut Seoul's total food waste by about 10%, or 56,000 tons. If you want to hear more about food waste and what's being done to fight it, check out episode 234 of What Doesn't Kill You. Would you be outraged if you were billed for wasting food? Send us your thoughts at ideas at meatn3.nyc. Back in the United States, Greek yogurt's popularity is causing environmental trouble in New York. Ariyama Long has the story. The problem with whey is how we use it. Cream cheese and Greek yogurt in the States is a $6 billion industry that New York State Farms produce 70% of. The U.S. also created 97.6 million pounds of whey last year. Farmers have often used the excess to feed animals, fertilize crops, or treat wastewater. But too much whey can be bad for the environment. Director John Lucy is a dairy chemist and professor at University of Wisconsin-Madison. He's been studying dairy foods for over 20 years. There are different types of ways. So there are what we call regular cheese ways. Or sweet water whey. That can come from cheeses when drained. Or you mentioned cream cheese and Greek yogurt, which are what we call acid ways. Not burn your face off acid, but the kind that's naturally fermented and then separated. So you're basically left with mostly sugars, some acid, some minerals, and water, basically. They have a lot of carbohydrate, which is lactose. And, and when you put that into a water or into a stream, when the bacteria use them, they can start to drop and deplete the oxygen level in the water in the, in the, in the stream. That's obviously a concern because fish and other wildlife want to have water, uh, sorry, air in that water. So even though it's natural and high in protein, it can be harmful to the environment in large quantities if not managed properly. And it wasn't that long ago probably in the 1970s, really, that lots of, we, were, we were in a similar kind of situation with the regular cheese where made by regular cheeses, and they found all sorts of value-added solutions and processing technologies to make you know, hundreds of millions of dollars, maybe billions of dollars a year globally from cheese way, which was a disposal problem for regular ones. So we, we, we kind of have to learn from what we did before and come up with good solutions. And like other parts of the world, like I said, people just drink it to, like, hydrate themselves. That's Homa Dishtaki. 
the owner and founder of White Mustache Yogurt, based in Red Hook, Brooklyn. She uses a handmade old world yogurt technique for her products. We strain our yogurt using um, special cheesecloth, and back in Iran, you used to just drink the whey that came from it, kind of like it was the magical elixir that resulted from the whole process. And here in the States, we make 80 gallons per batch, and we um, have whey as a result of our straining process, and we turn our whey into drinks and Whey has all the same probiotics, minerals, and calcium as solid yogurt, and has been consumed by people as far back as 8500 BC. It's a bit new for us here in the U.S. Trying to come out, you know, really big yogurt, which has been probably the big supplier of this type of acid whey. It has only really, you know, boomed in the last 10 years. So my experience with it has been that, like, it's not a familiar flavor, a familiar taste to most Americans, and they're very, very hesitant to try it. So it's very light, very crisp, and goes well with things like passion fruit juice or pineapple juice. Uh, we have a honey lime and a ginger whey as well. And that's the benefit of a daughter and pop yogurt shop. Next up, Nina Medvinskaya investigates New York City food establishment's role in cutting down on food waste. New York City contributes about a million tons of food waste to landfills annually. And when this amount of food goes into the trash bin rather than onto someone's plate, the consequences are manifold. Food establishments such as restaurants, supermarkets, and coffee shops are a big part of both the problem and the solution to this crisis. About 1.4 million people in our city are food insecure, and that's completely insane. I mean, we're one of the wealthiest cities in the world in probably the wealthiest country in the world. So the fact that there are people going to bed hungry is not only heartbreaking, it's outrageous. That's Jonah Allen, press secretary to Rafael Espinal, city council member of New York's 37th district. Espinal sponsored a food rescue legislation for establishments aimed at minimizing the volume of scrapped food by providing sustenance to those in need. It's not that we don't have the food to feed these people, it's that we're allowing this food to be thrown into landfills, that we're allowing this food to just be thrown away and go to waste. The website, slated to go live in 2019, will facilitate food pickups by connecting food establishments with nonprofits and food banks. This will help excess food, regardless of amount, weight, or type, to get from point A to point B, thus minimizing the percentage of unused food resources. The legislation that the council member sponsored was passed last year, and basically what it did was it required the city to create a website that was kind of similar in nature to a Craigslist. The way it'll probably work is that food establishments will post about food that they have available and all the information about it. And like Craigslist, it'll be a matter of demand. It's like you see something on Craigslist, you see like a nice couch, and you reach out to the owner and you say, hey, I'd like to buy that. Or you see something and you decide to pass it over. So it's going to be based on demand, and food banks and nonprofits will determine what they think is right for their inventory. City Harvest, one of New York City's prominent food rescue organizations, has over 30 years of experience in preventing excess food from becoming wasted food. 
Lisa Spasato, City Harvest's food sourcing director, spoke to me about why food waste is such a prevalent issue in New York City. If you talk to a supermarket, they will give you a different answer of why they waste food versus a restaurant. I had a conversation with someone who works very closely with restaurants on a daily basis, and he says, how is it possible that a meal that was perfectly fine to consume at 10.59 p.m. then becomes waste at 11 p.m.? And so the answer is it's not okay, and so that's why we exist. We want to show people that it's just as easy to put excess food, which is fine for consumption, in a container, a food safe container for us to pick up versus throwing it out. Liability concerns are a major reason why food establishments stray away from food rescue programs. Yet many businesses aren't aware of the federal Bill Emerson Good Samaritan Act of 1996, which protects establishments donating to nonprofit organizations from facing liability consequences. Just to touch on the liability part of it, there is the Bill Emerson Good Samaritan Act that once the food is transferred to City Harvest, we take liability. So that's where the food establishments can rest easy as long as they're giving us food in their minds that is perfectly fine for consumption. City Harvest is on a mission to rescue 61 million pounds of food this year by delivering it to those in need within New York City's five boroughs. The success of this endeavor depends on whether food establishments will commit to incorporating food rescue practices into their daily routines. It is part of their DNA, so to speak, when every store person, manager, helper, whatever they do, they know that at the end of the night, whatever is left over will be put into food safe containers and put to the side for city harvest. And then our driver comes around and picks it up. So it's a matter of becoming part of their routine. Just like they close up their cash registers at the end of the night, they can think about putting food aside for city harvest at the end of the night as well. Cutting down on food waste in New York City is a group effort that we can all pitch into by cultivating a conversation rooted in the way we think about digesting our leftovers and sharing them with those in need. This whole thing sort of rises and falls on public awareness and public participation. And I know that you have such a strong network of people who are plugged into food and food policy, your listeners. So to the greatest extent that they can get involved, that they can join these efforts, we really appreciate that. And we really hope that we can start a movement to end food insecurity in our city, stop the insane amount of food waste our city produces, and just create a more equitable, environmentally friendly city for all. We're going to take a quick break, but when we return, we'll take you to the Food Tank Summit, a recent conference dedicated to finding potential solutions to food waste. This episode is brought to you by Heritage Foods. Heritage Foods was founded to sell ancient breeds of livestock and poultry that were becoming extinct, largely because industrial agriculture willfully pushed healthy heritage breeds aside for more profitable, faster-growing animals. Rare heritage breeds are saved when popular demand increases and farmers have the incentive to raise them. This Thanksgiving, we encourage you to buy a turkey from Frank Reese's Good Shepherd Poultry Ranch. Frank's turkeys are 100% purebred heritage, 100% pasture-raised, and 100% antibiotic-free. Turkeys are available in two-pound increments. You choose your size. Don't wait. Pre-order your Heritage Thanksgiving turkey today at heritagefoods.com. Welcome back to Meet in 3. This week, we're exploring food waste in all its forms. 
Our final story comes from Dylan Hoyer. She attended the Food Tank Summit, a conference dedicated to finding potential solutions to food waste. Her report about farming and food waste gets to the heart of the matter. Why is solving food waste so important? Our panel will be speaking about the loss that happens on the farm where the food is grown pre and post harvest. If that voice sounds familiar, it's because HRN's executive director, Katie Mosman Wadler, moderated a panel at the conference. Experts from various backgrounds, including the corporate sector, nonprofits, and academia, weighed in on why this issue matters. I, I think we should realize that we more or less have a broken food system. When 800 million of us go to bed hungry, uh, 600 million are obese, uh, we waste 30% of our food, then something is fundamentally wrong. That's Marie Haga, Executive Director of the Global Crop Diversity Trust. If food waste affects the entire food system, why is it important to talk about farms specifically? Jack Algier speaks to this. He is the Farm Director at the Stone Barn Center for Food and Agriculture. We've had this false sense of some agricultural system going to take care of us outside of the rest of nature, that agriculture and conservation are separate things. If we really looked at what farmers are doing on this landscape now, these are people that are actually caring for land, but we're not focusing on the values of the things that are actually being saved and conserved. Clean water and organic soils and carbon sinks and habitats, things like that. I believe that's a direct relationship to hunger because it's disempowered the farmers and communities that had for so long sustained themselves. Ensuring food security for our communities must include farmers themselves. A study in Tanzania demonstrated by reducing food loss, small farmers can increase their revenue by 30%. Rafael Flor directs the YieldWise initiative at the Rockefeller Foundation. He tells us how far these extra earnings can go and increases the food security of those farmers by 30%, and 40% among women. To reap the benefits of decreasing food waste, there are still critical obstacles to overcome. One of the things we really need to deal with now is, of course, climate change. Farmers have to deal with much rougher weather, more storms, heavier rain. And it's going to be important, for example, to develop plants then that have stronger root systems. Marie Haga is not alone in her desire to take advantage of what technology has to offer farmers. When it comes to the developing countries, a lot of the losses happen from production after harvest. And most of this is because of lack of technology, things that mostly the farmers, okay, they could do something, but they can't afford to do it. Jane Ambuco is the head of horticulture in the Department of Plant Science and Crop Protection at the University of Nairobi. She is working to reduce food loss by improving storage systems for small rural farms in Africa. When it comes to the developed countries, cold storage for horticultural crops is standard. Cold storage helps preserve crops, but cold rooms are often too expensive for small farmers to build. Are there alternatives to conventional cold room, for example? The answer is yes. Jane has worked to promote the use of evaporative cooling technology. This is not a new technology. In fact, it's relatively simple. When water evaporates from a substance, charcoal is what Jane suggests, it has a cooling effect. This phenomenon also explains why sweating cools down our skin. This is not high-tech, but again, looking at affordability and suitability for rural farmers in Africa, where electricity is a challenge, 
So this for us is appropriate technology. Storing crops is vital, but reducing farm food waste requires engaging with the food system at multiple levels, as Tobias Grasso explains. He is the North American president of food care for the Sealed Air Corporation. You can also talk to transporters, logistics operators, processors, and be creative about looking at the food loss that happens at the farm level, understand the components of that chain, and create a streamlined solution. Farm to table is a phrase we hear often, but Jack Algier elaborates what's really at stake in the process of getting produce to consumers. When we're not having systems that are linked directly to communities that, that have an end use, then of course there's going to be significant waste in those systems. By creating connections between farmers and their communities, less food is wasted and everyone benefits. Jane Ambuco provides a helpful example. Mango is one of the major fruits we produce in Kenya. But again, the wastage in mango, we're talking about upwards of 50%. And that is lost income for the farmers. So how can you help these farmers make more? In Kenya, mango retail for three US cents when the mango is in season. The same mango, when it moves from the farm, some logistics, somebody has transported, gotten it to the city, it goes for upwards of 60 cents. That's like 20 times more. Not all crops are considered equal, however, and many don't even make it to the market. Elizabeth Mitchum speaks to this. She's the director of the Horticulture Innovation Lab at University of California, Davis. I remember being in a field with a peach grower, and they had already picked the trees, but there were quite a lot of fruit left on the tree. And we asked him, you know, so when are you going to pick the rest of these? And he said, these don't have enough red color, and therefore the market isn't going to pay us enough to make it economically worthwhile for us to pick them. All this makes you wonder, who is responsible for these issues? and what we can do to change this system. Marie Haga believes it must start from the bottom. I think nothing will happen at that top political level unless we get consumers involved. And that you demand food that is good for you, that's good for the farmers, and that is good for the planet. I think that's really where the change is going to come. That's our show. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with a new episode where we'll be getting funky. Meet and 3 is produced by Liza Hamm, Hannah Forden, Katie Mosman-Wadler, and me, Kat Johnson. With additional reporting this week by Dylan Hoyer, Ariama Long, Nina Medvinskaya, and Kevin Wheeler. Our audio engineer is Matt Patterson, with additional engineering by Amanda Wang. Our theme song was composed by Breakmaster Cylinder. Meet and 3 is a production of Heritage Radio Network, the world's pioneer food radio station. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org and follow us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio.